Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Discover more about our wondrous, world-class city at the Chicago Architecture Center, now open and adhering to public health safety standards. Plan your staycation exploring two floors of awe-inspiring exhibits. From our interactive city models to skyscrapers that change the world. And learn about the fascinating stories behind the fabulous facades. Book your tickets today at architecture.org. The stories of the city begin at the CAC. the radio make sure the television the, excuse me make sure you have the record player on at night the, the, the phone make sure the kids hear words i'm not a doctor this ben jarofsky show benny j bonus interview is brought to you in part by the international brotherhood of electrical workers local nine the international union of operating engineers local 150 and the Chicago Federation of Labor. Benny J, take it away. Bonus time in the Ben Jarofsky Show as I speak. It's Thursday, July 9th, 2020. I'll give you a sense of what's in the news, because, of course, you could be listening to this anytime. But here's the headlines on the New York Times. Court 7-2 allows religious opt-out on birth control. 126,000 may lose employer coverage. Justice undermine Obama rules. That's the headline in the New York Times. And that was based on a ruling that came out yesterday, uh, not in the paper because it just came out today, was a Supreme Court ruling uh, on whether Donald John Trump, President of the United States, uh, has to uh, have his tax records turned over. And, uh, well, I'm a little all over the map on that ruling. And uh, But uh, anyway, it's a perfect way to introduce our guests, we're going to talk about these Supreme Court rulings and a lot of political stuff with a real political junkie uh, who knows her stuff. So as we do with all guests on the Ben Jarofsky Show, I ask my distinguished guest to introduce herself. I love that there's an element of surprise. Like, it's what's behind door number one for this podcast. Uh, I am Meredith Schreiner. I'm a reporter. I'm a former national political reporter and congressional reporter who now lives in Chicago. Uh, and flip to the dark side to do communication. Uh, but I'm happy to be here today to talk with you about everything that's happening in national politics. And I especially appreciate that the introduction is sort of the audio version of proof of life in these times, <laughs> reminding me what the day is, holding up the, the audio newspaper. <laughs> One day we'll look back at this time and we won't remember it at all. So it'll be a nice reminder for us. Yeah, that's sort of the theme. It's like we're all prisoners. <laughs> we're holding up newspapers. Did this really happen on this day? Uh, anyway, all right, Meredith. Uh, let's just start. Well, let's start with today's ruling. And uh, well, two rulings actually ahead. on mm-hmm. on Donald Trump. So and his financial records. So the Supreme Court ruled ruled in two different cases. One was whether or not. Um, the financial records of Donald Trump could be subpoenaed by a federal grand jury. 
And the other was whether House Democrats were entitled to subpoena those financial records. Um, and so there's good news and bad news in these rulings. Uh, let's go first with uh, the grand jury and whether or not the district attorney could have access to this, these financial records. In a 72 decision, the Supreme Court ruled that, in fact, they did have the power to subpoena these records and that they would have to be turned over to the district attorney. Um, and the basic gist of that ruling is that no one is above the law, not even the president. And so I think that that's an important precedent generally to be set by the judiciary in terms of keeping the executive in check. But I think one of the things that's being asked is, well, what might this mean for the election? And I think that um, in terms of the election and what we might know in great detail or in specificity about the president and his finances before the election, this is a real open question because the point of a House subpoena and to have Congress have the power to have some of those documents is that they could make them more public more quickly versus a grand jury where there isn't like an expedited timeline and there isn't necessarily a public disclosure through the process uh, of that grand jury. So, you know, when it comes to the election, will we know the details of Donald Trump's finances by the time people start voting? I don't know that the answer is yes. In fact, it's, it's likely that the answer could be no. However, the president has been said that the president is not above the law. Um, in the House Democrat case, it was kicked back to the lower court. The Supreme Court basically said that neither side had really made a compelling case in favor of these disclosures. But I think the interesting thing about the ruling about whether or not the House had the power to subpoena these financial documents was, if you read the New York Times coverage of this, they talk about what the judge in the lower court had, had discussed. And the lower court's ruling had basically said, look, like every other president in modern era has voluntarily released their tax returns. So you can't really make the argument or the argument is specious that sharing these tax returns would preclude the president of the United States from doing his job. And, and that's an interesting legal argument to consider. But I'd also like to consider the political argument of this, which is that all of our elections processes, a lot of our processes in Congress were based on this element of good faith. It was assumed that people would disclose their tax returns. It was assumed that Jimmy Carter would put his peanut farm in a blind truck. And those assumptions weren't actually strong enough to safeguard against someone who didn't care for good faith arguments or acting in good faith when it came to the rules. And so I think from a political perspective or a legislative perspective, one of the things that might be interesting about today is looking back at today's rulings, should there be a change in administration, should there be a change in power in the Senate, and what might happen come January, come February, when legislators in potentially a different Washington meet, and consider whether or not good faith is enough. So, for example, Liz Warren actually had a bill that she introduced in 2018 that would mandate disclosure of tax returns for presidential candidates. And you could enshrine some of these things in law that previously were just sort of taken like at face value to help change the country moving forward. Yeah, I remember that uh, legislation. I also remember there was an effort in California. I don't, I don't know what happened to it, Meredith. Uh, do you recall this, that there was an effort to uh, limit access to the ballot 
only to presidential candidates who had released their tax returns, which was an interesting concept. I don't know what went with it. My advice to Trump, completely cynical, jaded advice, was just don't release your tax forms because of our electoral college. It it's it would just un, it would just put a spotlight on how ridiculous our election system is. You don't even run in the most popular populous state in the union and you could still get elected president that was my advice to donald trump on that one but i don't do you, do you remember look, what at, I, look at you just a natural born kellyanne conway <laughs> uh i uh, honestly on the grand scale of all of the things i do remember and that have like broken my brain and my soul over the past <laughs> four years i don't remember that specifically so i can't speak to it all right meredith help me with this i i tend to um drift toward the cynical jaded side of life i think it's all these years of covering politics in the city of chicago and when uh i woke up this morning and saw that that ruling had been made and it was seven to two and i just saw the headline i was excited i was like we're gonna finally get to see these taxes these tax returns that trump has been hiding and concealing all this time and then as i read the articles i realized like the case as you just pointed out very well the case in which would it required immediately turning over the taxes is the one that trump won the case in which there could be a delay uh in turning over the taxes uh is the case that trump lost so the net effect is we don't get to see the taxes before the election go on well Yes and no, right? So, I mean, a few things. And I think one of the criticisms that you saw from progressives today, especially on the House case, was that they waited a really long time to try to sue the administration for these records. And they sort of put themselves in this position where they could get boxed in by the judiciary that could delay the ruling, right? This kicked it back to the lower court. So eventually, like, you could see House Democrats get access to these financial documents that just very likely won't be before the election. And, you know, the argument they made this entire time or an argument you heard from Adam Schiff during impeachment, for example, about not taking John Bolton to court for subpoenas was all about this idea that it would drag on and then you wouldn't get access to this information anyway. I think in the case of Donald Trump's financial documents, if you want to take a silver lining sort of approach to it, is while it might not be available before the election, like this is someone who's been a lifelong cheat at everything. <laughs> if you trust his niece, he didn't even take the SATs for himself. And he could have gone on forever cheating the American government out of however many taxes he has dodged over the course of decades. And because he wanted to pursue this, at some point, I think it will catch up with him. At some point in the legal system, someone is going to get a hand on whatever these statements are that Deutsche Bank has or any number of these financial institutions. And the Supreme Court has set the president that no one is above the law. Their entire argument, the administration's entire argument, is that the only thing that shields Donald Trump from this is his position of being president of the United States. And ultimately, his decision to run and serve as president of the United States, I think, will be what catches up with him, if anything could ever catch up with him. So... Look, I, you're not going to see it before the election, but I also think people know who Donald Trump is. Like, when you think about what might factor into this election, his financial documents, I'm not sure. 
at this point in time, like who moves because of them? So look, I think that in an ideal world where we have transparent good governance, none of this would have happened and we would be in a position where it can't continue to happen. And so either there will be judicial ramifications for him after his presidency and that can be a silver lining or, you know, if things change electorally for Democrats and they look at what's happened in the government over the past four years, whether it's the gutting of federal agencies or the politicization of federal agencies or a, a president who acts in his own interest, as the House said in their indictment of him in the impeachment proceedings. And in fact, even some Senate Republicans said before they voted to acquit him that some policies could be put in place to help rebuild what has either been eroded or destroyed by years of the Republican Party, but acutely in the past few years under this administration. Uh, let's speculate a little bit, if you will. Uh, we do this on the show all the time with Trump and his taxes, and we discuss why he is so uh, reluctant, euphemistic word I go, uh, to releasing his taxes, to follow what you laid out, what the protocol that candidates for presidency have done, I don't know, since Nixon. Uh, so there's two schools of thought that are generally advanced. One is he's embarrassed by how little he uh, is actually made and how much wealth he has, and the other is that he's concealing uh, some dastardly deed. Uh, where do you stand on this? Well, I'm not really a crystal ball kind of girl. I don't really like speculating. Um, but I do think that what we've seen in reporting is that like, he has a lot of arrangements with foreign banks in foreign countries. And if you look at some of the even recent reporting, either through the impeachment process or what's come out after, as a result of Bolton's book or um, independent reporting, his financial interests in countries um, for his personal gain and personal business obviously exist, but there are ways in which we don't understand the depth to which he might be indebted to a bank that is run by a foreign nation. Um, and so I think if you're going to take an informed guess on some of the things that you would not want exposed um, via like trying to cover up uh, tax returns, like that that could be one of them. Um, I think there was conversation about business dealings with Russia, Saudi Arabia, and China. Um, and those some of those things have either been corroborated um, through testimony given by officials or books written by officials for profit. Um, and so I think that that would potentially be the most damaging information that would be available in those documents. But, I mean, I don't think that you're wrong to be like, you might be embarrassed by what the total is, right? Because his his genius for the past 15 years has just been branding. Um, and what is that Trump name worth? He's made claims about it, but we don't know exactly. Yeah, and uh, we're... I'm going to like do this as a pin, like people pin on their tw uh, Twitter accounts. Hold that thought. Uh, the significance okay. in the election, because we're going to get to some Senate races. I, revelations about Donald Trump's tax returns may not impact, as you say, the uh, presidential election in that uh, Trump lovers are going to follow him off a cliff. Uh, although you could argue some swing voters in Wisconsin or Michigan may go 
may be pushed by it. But it could have an impact on some of the Senate races. We'll get into that, the whole issue of Trump's, uh, Trump's popularity uh, and how it impacts Republicans running for re-election in some of these Senate races. But before I lose the Supreme Court theme, let's talk about uh, yesterday's ruling, 7-2, to allowing religious opt-out on birth control. Um, I'm Maris, why don't you help me? I'm looking for some silver lining in this one. <laughs> really having trouble finding some silver lining in this one. I was like cursing uh, out Elena Kagan yesterday and uh, uh, Stephen Breyer. Uh, why don't you lead us through uh, this decision? So, you know, I have a lot of thoughts on this. The basic gist of the decision is that faith-based employers who don't believe in contraception shouldn't be required to provide health insurance that covers it. I have a personal philosophical disagreement with that. Um, I think that it's always been tenuous for um, people to argue against contraception, against abortion, um, to to build arguments um, that run contrary to what um, the Supreme Court outlined in Roe versus Wade about the right to privacy or any sort of bodily autonomy. However, if you're looking for a silver lining, I'm going to pose a few of them to you. First and foremost, I think one of the biggest failings in the 2016 election, and there were a lot of them, is the idea that Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell stole a Supreme Court seat, was in the process of stealing a Supreme Court seat that summer. And when you watch the Democratic National Convention, the Supreme Court didn't come up as a topic. The words Merrick Garland were not uttered. And I think a thing that Republicans are much better at is really energizing folks based on these court decisions, because what has happened over the past several years is a fundamental reshaping of the federal judiciary at every level by the Trump administration and conservative Republicans. Like they had two goals over these past four years and they achieved them. They gave massive tax breaks to the wealthiest Americans and the wealthiest corporations in this country. And they have forever changed, not forever, but like maybe for the next 70 years because they love confirming like 35 year olds to federal appointments on the court. And so the more there are these sorts of rulings that actually draw attention to the Supreme Court, the better. And in fact, John Roberts knew that because he had the power to actually decide the same way in a case that would have impacted Roe versus Wade in that June medical case, and instead basically reaffirmed the position that was against his position from a few years ago, saying that there was no reason that he could change it. And I think that he is a very savvy political operator and understood that if he remained consistent in his position, it would have energized Democratic voters. And so I think focusing on how important the Supreme Court is or how, the, how important the judiciary is should be an important topic for this election, however this election manifests itself in these weird times that we're living in. And hopefully a decision like this makes people think about it. Um, but yeah, it's, it's hard to find a silver lining because these sorts of things should be accessible and affordable to all women who need it. And we know that when these decisions come down, they disproportionately impact women of color. Um, they disproportionately impact women who can't afford contraception or birth control on their own. Um, and it just, it 
it reverses some of the progress that we've made. Like the rates of abortion in this country have gone down because access to birth control has gone up. Um, and one of my great frustrations with the Democratic Party is that when it comes to issues on choice, they refuse to actually frame these issues in the context of medical science. Um, when Republicans basically trot out both fake doctors to talk about abortion in ways that are not realistic with science, Democrats don't engage them on the science, and then Republicans run an entire propaganda network on the internet that then promotes fake science that continues to entrench divisiveness on something that shouldn't be. So when 60 when 60 percent of Americans get their news on abortion from right to life propaganda websites, that's a problem, and it's especially a problem because we're Democrats are doing nothing to fight on the science in mainstream media, and we see what kind of impact that has on issues like vaccines or even wearing a mask. And so this is not a decision from a political perspective that should be viewed in isolation. This is a decision that is in part of like a larger systemic failure about how we talk about science in this country and how we disseminate information. And until Democrats are willing to fight on the science, to actually put forward medical professionals to counteract their fake doctors and to understand that like when the mainstream media sort of shies away from some of these issues and leaves it to some of these right-wing websites, they're losing a lot of people who are basically being brainwashed into believing certain things are wrong because they're being fed a bunch of junk. That is really well put. Just that I agree with everything you just said. And now, but the the perverse thing, it just underscores my depression. This is, this is, why, this is why I come on your show, <laughs> yeah, just so you can validate my personal beliefs. Yeah. But this just, is the problem with America, Ben. I know. We just talk to each other. Uh, that we people we believe in, agree with. But, okay. But it also. Well, you know, we disagree on something. So, so we'll, we'll find that. I don't know. We, we'll maybe get to local <laughs> politics. We can find something we disagree on. But. The, what I find particularly frustrating is Elena Kagan and Stephen Breyer. They're two Democrats. They voted with John Roberts and the Republicans on this issue. And to your first point, which is that decisions like this put a spotlight uh, on the significance of the Supreme Court. The fact that two Democrats voted with the Republicans turns off the spotlight because what's the point of having a Democratic nominee on the Supreme Court if they're going to throw 126,000 women under a bus? First of all, there are a lot of points about having like justices appointed by presidents who have won elections to spots on the Supreme Court. When we are, again, only like three years separated from Senate Republicans legitimately stealing a Supreme Court seat that should have been filled by a Democrat. I don't think that you can say that it doesn't matter. Um, I didn't read their justification, Kagan and Breyer, about why they wanted to send the case back to a lower court. Um, so I can't really speak in detail to it. I've done, this is my 19th Zoom in three days. <laughs> so that I can even put together coherent sentences is really actually impressive. Um, look, you know, 
when you nominate a Supreme Court justice, you in in an ideal world, you're not nominating them because you think that they're going to agree with you or support your administration in every single decision that you make. Republicans think that, and they've generally succeeded at it. I think in an ideal world, what you want from an independent judiciary are people who are really smart, who believe generally in human rights, and who are going to like take to the issues a deliberate, thoughtful lens in accordance with the laws of this country, and not in like a fundamental, strict, constructionist kind of way, but in a way that is reflective of our modern world. And just because two of the people on the liberal side of the continuum on the Supreme Court voted to kick this to a lower court doesn't mean there's no value in making sure that the people who get confirmed to these positions are going to be good and professional, particularly at a time when we're seeing people who are rated as unqualified by the American Bar Association who are getting lifetime appointments to federal courts from Mitch McConnell, like unqualified. It used to be at least that Republicans would find qualified neoconservatives. They don't even bother doing that anymore. And so like, this is a really important issue outside of just this one case. And I think it's really important for a functioning, healthy America to have a judiciary that is filled with people who are actually qualified to serve on the bench from the district to appellate all the way up to the Supreme Court. And what we saw, and particularly with Justice Kavanaugh's confirmation, is that some of those norms and standards that used to exist don't anymore, and it is highly problematic because it doesn't matter if you elect a Democratic president and get health care. The judiciary doesn't protect basic human rights, doesn't stand for supporting the franchise and making sure that every American can vote whether it's from the Shelby County decision or some of the more recent decisions, like we're in big, big trouble. All right, let's move on and talk about the impact of some of these decisions uh, on the uh, presidential race and the Senate race, just in the most general way. Uh, these decisions are coming out, let's see, it's June. The, the election's not till November. Do you think they'll be forgotten in November or do you think they will play a role uh, in the upcoming elections? I think that it depends on which election you're talking about. And I don't think it's about specific decisions more than it is sort of a battle for the courts in the aggregate. I think if you're thinking about someone like Mitch McConnell, he truly believes that his biggest accomplishment over these past few years have been filling these judicial positions. He talks about it a lot. Like we're in the middle of a global pandemic and an economic recession. And the only thing that he does is confirm like 38 year olds justices to court positions. So I think for conservatives who especially um, have run on platforms that are about these social wedge issues, like they always run on the court. Whether or not Democrats talk about it significantly, I think is a little bit up to Joe Biden um, and how he wants to approach his campaign. Um, I think it's really hard to predict in any real way, what this campaign is going to look like over the next few months. Um, and it's hard to predict for a lot of reasons. First of all, if anyone tells you they know what this campaign is going to play out like, they are lying and getting paid too much money from CNN because they're Chris Eliza. Um, I, I think that 
because of everything that's happening, I don't know. I don't know what a campaign looks like. I don't know what canvassing looks like. I don't know if Donald Trump will participate in debates, but I do know that one of the things about Joe Biden and one of the features of, you know, his beliefs about what a president should be is that, you know, his main, his main thing, his main theme is that he has this view of like what the president is from like a tone perspective, right? Like he thinks certain things are presidential and that's sort of the view of a president that he wants to live up to. Um, I think he loves the institution of the Senate. I happen to hold the opposite view. I think the Senate has outlived its useful life. Um, and so, you know, when he earlier in this campaign, particularly in the primary, talked about, well, I can work with Mitch McConnell, you know, I don't know how that interplays with trying to make a coherent case about the importance of the judiciary and what's happened over the past few years. But I can tell you that from a Senate race perspective, um, particularly, you know, in certain campaigns where you're seeing more progressive candidates run, even even in Kentucky, right, where Charles Booker really gave Amy McGrath a run for her money, like you're hearing people talk about how important the courts are. You're, people, you're starting to hear people talk, although not enough, about the importance of voting rights. And if you care about voting rights in this country, then you have to care about the judiciary. So do I think that these individual decisions will have an impact on the race in November? Probably not. But I think the overall conversation about what our government should be, what a functioning government looks like, and how we move forward has a lot to do with what's happening now. And when you think about like Elizabeth Warren, right, one of her first promises that she said if she was elected was to be someone who investigated all of the malfeasance or the corruption that had been happening across the Donald Trump presidency um, and the administration in these years. And I think when you look at the decision that happened today about Donald Trump's financials, the question is, do Democrats, if they win control, drop it? Because they think it's politically convenient to drop some of these things. Or do they continue because they believe that there is a good precedent to be set by holding presidents to certain standards, ethical standards, um, and to ensure that, you know, we don't put ourselves in a position again where someone can put their personal financial interests in front of the country's interests. I don't know. And I don't know if that conversation will take place in a real thoughtful or faithful way. But that could be one of the lasting impacts of what we've seen today going forward. All right. Before we move on to some of these individual Senate races, and the one I really want to talk to you about is Maine. Uh, I have to go back on something you said. I wrote it down when you said it. Uh, okay. The Senate has outlived its useful life. I think that's what you said. It's, I sometimes have a hard time that is, reading, that is what I've reading said. my own writing. Uh, but That is uh, 100% what I said. Uh, go into more detail on that. Um, and I say this as a person who covered the United States Senate for seven years and once had to run a blog about the Senate. Um, I, I think that this goes back to the argument that certain institutions were built on good faith. And when that good faith eroded, we were left to question the purpose of the institutions, right? So when you think about the design of the House and the Senate and the upper chamber was designed not to be reflective of representational politics, but instead this place where ostensibly mature adults 
could squash the whims of an impetuous people, which was represented by the house. Like that was the initial design of it. And we've seen how much that gets distorted and has been distorted over time when you basically have the tyranny of a minority entrenched in the design of the institution, right? Like when you look at the 2018 election, Democrats won nationwide by what, 9 million votes? And they're the minority in the Senate. And the Senate has the power to confirm administration nominees, to fill the judiciary, to stop legislation that makes sense. Like we live in a country where 97% of Americans support expanded background checks because they're sick and tired of seeing kids dying. And the Senate says no. So when you think about how to build an effective government, like we have an institution that has stopped the popular opinion and a a wide popular opinion, like by 9 million votes popular being able to enact legislation that makes our country a better place. And if your whole thing is they're going to be thoughtful, deliberate negotiators and good old boys who get in a room and get those done, that's not what it is. And it's not what it's been for a long time. And so, you know, to me, Mitch McConnell is the most like powerful person in America because he's smart enough to know what he's doing. And he's absolutely executed against an agenda that has changed the country. And he's done so with a majority that represents a minority of Americans. And so I question the usefulness of that sort of institution. And someone like Joe Biden, who grew up in that institution, right, like has a different view because I think that's like he treasures the idea of it. And that I think gets in the way of understanding its current role in our politics. And so, like, when you hear certain candidates, and there weren't that many in the Democratic primary, but there is a growing number at the presidential level who are calling for the filibuster, the legislative filibuster, to be abolished so they can start moving legislation with a simple majority. People who claim to be institutionalists pearl clutch about it. But Mitch McConnell purports and gets covered in Washington like this brand institutionalist when really he's fundamentally broken the institution. He's used every lever that was designed and agreed upon by the body in bad faith to get what he wants. Yeah, no, uh, the inconsistencies uh, are abundant. And by the way, anytime we can create, uh, turn Washington, D.C. into a state, it's fine with me. Add two more Democrats in the Senate. A little help uh, in turning what is a very unfair But also, but, but, but yeah, like, let's say, like, to me, Americans who pay taxes should be represented in Congress. It doesn't matter if it's Republicans or Democrats. And this is like the Republican framing, actually, is why they justify not giving the franchise to like people of D.C. in a legitimate way by giving them voting members of Congress or Puerto Rico because they're like, oh, they'll be Democrats. I think that American citizens who pay taxes, who live in these places like D.C. or Puerto Rico, should be allowed to be represented in Congress and that they're not has had significant consequences for the residents of those cities. From D.C., where, 
you know, congressional Republicans, because they have some control over the budget, have used it as a petri dish for places where they ban, like, abor- abortion. They've used, they basically traded that away under the Obama administration in an appropriations deal to Puerto Rico, where thousands of people died because of Maria, and people weren't screaming louder because they didn't have members of Congress to represent them and to push the government for more. Yeah. No, it's so it's not a Democrat and Republican a Republican thing to me. It's like a fundamental fairness and absolutely human rights thing. I'm I'm with you on that one. We're seeing a lot eye to eye on that one. But it, the opposition is just pure politics by the Republicans. You're right. They're throwing out their principles. Listen, the throwing out the principles. I don't want to go back to it, but I sure just, because, the, because they understand that the the Senate place is the Senate is the place where Republicans know that they can have a minority majority yeah, rule. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Uh, let's close this with uh, what's happening in Maine. Uh, many people I know, I'm just thinking of my wife right now. You can't mention the name Susan Collins to them. <laughs> a lot of invective. Uh, we've done a good job. No swearing. So, so we can actually use this uh, interview with some of our radio shows that take our stuff. So I will not repeat the invective uh, that they say whenever I mention Su- Susan Collins' name, the senator from Maine. But man... Meredith, I know so many Democrats. I mean, we, we'll talk about Mitch McConnell another time. We'll bring you back for the deep dive on uh, Kentucky. But so many Democrats that I know really cannot take Susan Collins because they, they thought they expected more from her. They expected her to be the moderate Republican that, like, Low Wiker was back in the 70s, and, and obviously she hasn't been. So talk a little bit about that race uh, in Maine, the Senate race in Maine. Well, and I feel like at some point on this show, and I forget exactly which appearance it was, uh, I mentioned in passing some of my thoughts about Susan Collins. And I think one of the reasons why Democrats are perpetually disappointed is because she was always made out to be someone she wasn't. Um, So I wrote a piece for the New Republic that ran in the magazine in March, um, and the whole thesis of the piece was how the media built the myth of Susan Collins. Um, And she was always sort of this media darling, this moderate from Maine. And when she first came to the Senate uh, in 1995, I believe was when she was sworn in um, within a year, she got a glowing profile in New York times magazine. And the whole premise was that she was the face of this like movement of moderation that was going to rule Washington. Let's think about the mid nineties for a second. Like the people who had power in the mid nineties were Newt Gingrich, um, helped sow the seeds for breaking the government, then went on to pursue impeachment. Moderates were never in control of Washington in the mid nineties. And they certainly weren't, aren't in control of Washington now. And what is the middle when the party generally has moved so far to the right that like the middle is no longer even the ideological middle? And so I think for the general mainstream media view of Washington to perpetuate, to like help fuel this idea of both sides them or that there might be a reasonable voice that prevails, they have to tease this idea that it does, even though there's never any follow through for it. Because otherwise, their whole ethos and vision of what Washington is supposed to be doesn't exist. And it doesn't exist in real life, but the rules that they've built for this game 
need it to subsist in some way for them to continue to play the game. And so I think Susan Collins has always been more conservative than she's ever been painted out to be. Um, I think the idea of an independent voter has always sort of been overblown. And so what you're going to see in Maine is whether or not people are willing to just vote straight ticket no matter what. And I think for the most part, people do. And so in a presidential cycle where people are going to come to the polls, like, I think Susan Collins could be in trouble. But she's not in trouble because she hasn't been moderate enough, right? She's either in trouble because she didn't energize Republicans enough or because Democrats are way more energized to vote against her. And we don't know at the moment um, who the nominee will be. I presume it'll be uh, Sarah Gideon. Sarah Gideon. Uh, the former, uh, well, the Speaker of the House, uh, state representative. The other, the other thing that was always so funny to me about Susan Collins is that um, so when I first started in Washington, it was 2009, I was covering the Affordable Care Act for Politico, and the senior senator from Maine was Olivia Snow, mm. who was a legitimate moderate, who was legitimately pro-choice, who was always being courted at the time by Harry Reid uh, to join Democrats, especially after Ted Kennedy died, uh, because they needed, they needed a 60th vote. And so... Susan Collins often voted with Olympia Snow as a block because Olympia Snow was very popular in Maine and it provided her cover. And then when Susan, when Olympia Snow retired, she no longer had to sort of live in that shadow. She was like with John McCain and Lindsey Graham on like crazy Benghazi stuff and wanted to be like the third amigo for a little bit. Um, and was on the conservative side of wiretapping and really wanted to carve out a place in um, national security and foreign relations as opposed to where Olympia Snow was, which was on a lot of these domestic policies. Um, so there was also this conflating of like the two ladies from Maine. Yeah. Because it was so rare to have a lady in the Senate, but it was definitely rare to have two representing the same state. Yeah, and then there's a totally fictitious character uh, in the Doonesbury comic strips, uh, the uh, patrician, I forget her name, but she was a congresswoman. I think she was from Maine. And uh, so they all sort of, definitely with baby boomers and people, my mother, may she rest in peace, would talk about the two senators from Maine with just, my mom, total New Deal Democrat, okay? <laughs> I don't even want to say what my dear beloved mom would say about him because she was always felt, even Olympia Snow, okay? She was always, but particularly Susan Collins because you're absolutely correct. They, they built them up to be something, well, particularly in the case of Susan Collins, that she wasn't. And I think we saw that play out in the Brett Kavanaugh hearing where her, remember that much awaited Susan Collins speech on Brett Kavanaugh and whether, how she was going to vote and which way is she going to yeah, go? Yeah, I, I, I didn't await that eagerly. I pretty much knew what was going to happen. Yeah. You know, I, you know, people wanted, like people want that drama. Like when, when you decide that you can't cover the issues objectively because one side has become counterfactual or against the truth, um, you need to create that drama because the gamesmanship is all that you can cover. And you have to create that intrigue of like, oh, which way is she going to vote, even though you know the answer, because otherwise any other avenue of coverage has basically been taken away from you 
is you're unwilling to call out certain things. Yeah. That is really well put. I think that's about a good a good spot to lead this interview. Uh, and, and probably we should have a whole deep dive on uh, the j- journalism covering politics uh, in Washington. Because that you're absolutely... If one side just freaking lies to you all the time and then you just sort of... Put your hands, well, one hand is, you know, they say this, the other side says that, then you're right. You resort to, how will Susan Collins vote? Uh, and a lot of truth gets lost in the shuffle, so. I like your in-world voice that you slipped <laughs> into tell that anecdote. Yeah. I've, I could talk about journalism forever, so I just don't know if that's interesting to other people. Uh, well, you know, who cares? It's my podcast. We can talk about it. Yeah, you do what you want. No rules. <laughs> There's no rules. It's a podcast. That's why That's why you'll get me in trouble one day. Uh, uh, Meredith, thank you so much for coming on. And uh, I'm going to be a lot better about reaching out to you. Probably get you on next month. All right? Uh, well, it was a pleasure to see you again, even if it was over Zoom. And we'll talk soon. Very good. Thank you very much, Meredith. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everyone. Today. Rediscover our fascinating city this summer on a walking tour from the Chicago Architecture Center, now open and adhering to public health safety standards. Our entertaining and expertly trained docents will guide you through the Chicago you've been longing to explore, from magnificent downtown architecture to awe-inspiring neighborhood gems. If it's worth seeing, we'll take you there. Get tickets at architecture.org forward slash tours. The stories of the city begin at the CAC.